This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Let's look then at Matthew chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 1. We're continuing a series that we've begun uh, last December in the Gospel of Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins." But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of God, and we thank him for it. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we do thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to hear what you have to say in it this morning. Father, we pray that you would feed us and instruct us where necessary, bring us under conviction that we might live as your people. Father, we pray that your word would accomplish the purposes you have for it this morning in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For many people today, the word repent or repentance really is uh, little more than a joke. And there are a number of reasons for that, probably the kinds of associations that it brings to mind for some people. It brings to mind the, the, the typical cartoon character with the long shaggy hair and the prophet's robe and bare feet, standing on a street corner with a sign that says something like, Repent, for the end of the world is near. And for other people... The word may have the associations, uh, the worst associations of the ranting, sweating, sawdust trail evangelist screaming at his poor hearers to repent. Repent from what? They don't know. Well, the word repent probably in our day has so little meaning for the world and in fact is a caricature or a joke 
largely because the idea of sin has so little meaning. The word sin is empty, and therefore, for most modern people today, the word repent is a word that for all intents and purposes is meaningless. Sadly, all too often in the church, the same is true. The word repent is one that's not heard very often, and tragically, it may be for the very same reason that in too many churches today, the word sin is not mentioned or spoken of, perhaps for fear of offending people. Uh, and yet, if you don't understand and speak of sin, you really have no place to understand and speak of repentance. Without sin, of course, there's no need for repentance. Well, we can understand the world uh, being ignorant of and certainly not practicing repentance, but it's very sad that that's true in the church. And it's all the more strange when you understand that for whatever small place repentance may have in the vocabulary, in the preaching and teaching, and even the lives of many modern-day Christians, it's not so in the Bible. In fact, in the Scriptures, we find the word repent in its various forms 13 times in the Old Testament, 56 times in the New Testament. And in most of those, actually uh, the largest proportion of that coming in the Gospels of Luke, uh, Gospel of Luke the book of Acts, which is also written by Luke, uh, and the book of Revelation. And the word repent or repentance, repenting, occurs seven times in Matthew and three times in this chapter alone. A chapter concerned with the ministry of John the Baptist, which was a ministry of repentance. So whatever small role the word may play in the world and even in the church, the reality is, as we come to the scriptures, is this. If we are going to be biblical Christians, then we need to practice biblical repentance. We need to understand and, more importantly, practice biblical repentance. Now, our passage this morning provides us with four motivations to repent, to practice repentance and follow Christ, and then to live lives of daily, ongoing repentance. Four motivations that I want us to look at as we examine the ministry of John the Baptist here in Matthew chapter 3. In the first place, the first motivation is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, has We see this in verses 1 through 6. This passage introduces John's ministry. Now, we read about John in the other Gospels. They tell us other things that we don't learn from Matthew's Gospel, that John is a relative of Jesus. Uh, Elizabeth, his mother, was a cousin or a relative of Mary, Jesus' mother. Uh, We learn uh, some other things about John's ministry. But here in Matthew's Gospel, He introduces John, introduces him first of all by his message, the message that this man preached. In those days, uh, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what it introduces here, first of all, is his message. Uh, The first part of the message is repent. The word comes from a Greek word that was in use that had the meaning of changing one's mind. However, the word itself actually uh, occurs in the Old Testament. And while it certainly has the idea of a change in one's thinking, biblically, the idea is a change in how, how you think about your own life, how you think about your own behavior, 
how you think about who God is in such a way that your life is changed, that your life is different as a result. Not merely changing your thinking, as the Greeks use the word, but a change in your thinking by the grace of God about the things of God so that your life is different. You see, and that's the, that's the biblical distinctive of repentance and really the essence of repentance is not that just that you think differently, although you should, but that thinking differently causes you to live differently. And we see that as we look at John's ministry here. Now, it assumes sin. There's not much said here of sin, although it does mention it just a little bit, as we'll see. But the idea of repentance assumes that we are sinners, that we are, in fact, displeasing to God, and therefore change is required. We'll see more on that in just a little bit as we look at the Pharisees and Sadducees. But suffice it to say for now that John's message was repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that's a, that's a phrase that occurs a lot in Matthew's gospel. We will encounter it a lot. We'll talk about it a lot. Uh, but this is the basis that John gives, the reason that repentance is needed. The kingdom is at hand. It's near. It's drawing near. You could also say it is here. It has arrived. Now, that was a long anticipation of the Jewish people for the kingdom of heaven to come. And when John refers to it, he's not so much referring to a realm or a place as he is to something more dynamic. The rule of heaven, the rule of God, particularly through his Messiah here on the earth. Now, from the rest of scripture, we could say that the kingdom has come with Jesus uh, it came through his preaching, his miracles. It came through his death and resurrection. It came through the pouring out of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Uh, and it will come again when, when Jesus comes and ushers the kingdom in in all of its fullness. Uh, this, the kingdom of heaven was an Old Testament concept. Uh, John, I mean, uh, Matthew likes to say heaven. The other gospels, the kingdom of God. It's really the same thing. Uh, Matthew may be exercising sensitivity toward his Jewish readers. Uh, not to mention God directly, but speaking around the name of God, the kingdom of heaven, much as we might refer to providence has blessed me as a way of referring to God. Well, he refers to the kingdom of heaven. But the reign of God in the Messiah is, is now at hand. The kingdom is, is here. And this, of course, Matthew notes, the ministry of John was itself a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. As we read from Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John himself, as he comes declaring this message, is announcing an Old Testament, the coming of an Old Testament hope and anticipation. And he himself is the voice that is announcing, uh, preparing the way for the Messiah. And as uh, Isaiah's passage indicates, preparing the way, making his path straight means leveling the road, basically putting a new, we might say, putting down a new layer of pavement on the road. Uh, it was certainly not unknown that when a dignitary or a king or uh, some other was, was coming along a certain route, efforts would be made to make his passage as smooth and efficient and quick as possible. Well, that's what's in mind here. John is that forerunner who is preparing the way, not physically with a road, but preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah in the hearts of the people. Well, that's the message. Let's look at John the man. Uh, if we want to uh, just alliterate these, we could say that he was prophetic, verse 4. 
Uh, John wore a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was rather simple. It was locusts, which was not unknown as a, as a food source, a particular insect, and wild honey. Uh, John was a very much a prophetic, not pathetic, but a prophetic figure. Uh, all of that would be associated with the office of prophet from the Old Testament. Um, the simple garments, simple clothing, simple diet, living in the wilderness, not really so much a desert in the sense of, of, of just what we would think of just sand, but a, but a desolate area apart from other people, a wilderness kind of of area. And so John is very much the prototypical prophet, and in many ways, particularly with these distinctive things connected with, with Elijah. Uh, Elijah was described very similarly, and John the Baptist really is, in many ways, reminiscent of the prophet Elijah. He was popular. Although he was in the wilderness, he was nevertheless much sought for uh, in his ministry. Verse 5, Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. Now, it had been 400 years since there was a prophet on the scene, and people were excited. What is this? Word spread. Let's go out and see this man. Let's go hear what he has to say. What's going on here? And people, no doubt, went for all kinds of reasons, uh, but they'd heard of John, and although he uh, lived apart, people sought him out, and crowds gathered to hear what he had to say. But he was also powerful. Verse 6, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. You see, as they heard his preaching, it led them to undergo this baptism by John. And now he was known as John the Baptist, uh, his austere clothes and diet. Some have labeled him uh, John the Presbyterian. But uh, he was, in fact, called the Baptist because of the distinctive role of baptism in his ministry. Now, people came out to be baptized by him and heard him and were baptized Now, we think, well, okay, that's, you know, we understand baptism. Well, we need to consider a couple of things. One, the Jews practiced baptism, but typically and pretty much exclusively for non-Jews converting. It It was a ritual of cleansing that was applied to Gentiles who were becoming Jews, but would never have been applied to an actual Jew. Well, John was calling Jews to repentance and to receive this emblem of cleansing, this expression of repentance. So that was distinctive. The other thing that's distinctive about John's ministry is that John was baptizing. Typically in Jewish proselyte or convert baptism, the person baptized himself. And there would be witnesses, or at least a witness, to, to witness that the person had, had, had gone through this ritual ceremonial washing, but the person baptized or washed himself. Well, in this case, John was actually doing the baptism to another person, and that was different. We, we, we take that for granted, but in fact, that was unusual in John's baptism. And so he's doing this because the Messiah is, is, has come, and John is here to prepare the way for him, and that calls for repentance. It calls for, verse 6, people to confess their sins, acknowledging their sinfulness, their repentance being an expression of grief over it and a desire to turn from their sins to obedience. So he's preparing the way for the Messiah to come by calling people to repentance, calling them to confess their sins, acknowledging their need of the saving power of the Messiah. Now, we look later in the New Testament, in the ministry of Paul, Acts chapter 17, verse 30. 
and you see some very similar themes. Uh, Paul is in Athens. He is preaching to a Gentile, a Greek audience there at Mars Hill. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, verse 31, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Not all that different from John's preaching, was it? Paul simply says to them, God has been patient with you. He's overlooked your ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. There's that word again. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's appointed, by the Messiah. So we see that Paul's ministry and the preaching of the other apostles was very similar in John's. And it it said that the, the Messiah, the kingdom has come. Therefore, we need to repent. Therefore, we need to uh, receive this one who was to come. And any biblical church and any biblical pulpit today is preaching that same message. Of course, we live after John with the death and resurrection of Christ. We have more light and more details filled in, and yet the message is basically the same. Christ has come, and he calls on all men everywhere to repent to flee to him for salvation, to avoid the judgment that is to come. We'll talk more about that because John does here. So that's the first motive. The kingdom has come, and it is coming. And we will all stand before the Messiah, stand before Christ one day. And therefore, it is important, sinners that we are, that we repent, that we confess our sins, that we receive the Messiah. Second motive that he gives here is we have no righteousness of our own. We have no righteousness of our own. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9. As John was carrying out his ministry, he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, literally coming to the baptism. Um, It's unclear whether they were coming to receive baptism, that's possible, or if they were simply coming to watch, coming to observe, uh, to check out these things that they had, had heard. And so when they come, John responds to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, that's not very seeker-friendly. <laughs> what, what would set John off so? Well, we don't know. Uh, we, we don't see their expressions. We don't know what they're about. But we do know who they were. The Pharisees were a group that developed. Uh, the word means, the Pharisee basically comes from a word that means separatist. Uh, and the Pharisees delighted in separating themselves by the word of God and by the traditions that they developed from behavior they saw as wrong and, and sinful. And we have a negative view, but you need to understand for most people in, in Jesus' day, they had a very positive view. They liked the Pharisees. The Pharisees they saw as, as godly people, and many of them in terms of human righteousness were. Uh, we think of them as hypocrites. Many were, but many weren't. Uh, we encounter both in the scriptures. Uh, and yet, they tended to be rather self-righteous because they tried hard to be righteous. And they were proud of their self-righteousness or their righteousness, which led to self-righteousness. The Sadducees, on the, and the people liked them because they opposed Rome, the rule of Rome. Uh, they, they saw Rome as impostors, as, uh, as an unwanted tyrant. The Sadducees, on the other hand, had made peace with Rome. Uh, and in fact, part of the threat of Jesus' ministry for them was that it would upset Rome and, and, and the status quo would be disturbed because they had it pretty good. 
The Sadducees took their name from Zadok, who was the priest back in the day, high priest in the days of David on into Solomon. And uh, they were the high priestly class, uh, both political and religious leaders. And uh, when they both arrived, John, knowing their reputation and maybe seeing their behavior, uh, responds to them in this way. Basically, it says you're serpents and you're the children of serpents. Uh, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, if they came for baptism, it's possible that that too was a show to show that they too were ready to receive the Messiah when in fact there was no real repentance in their hearts. And that may be why John responds to them as he does. Nevertheless, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't say for yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That, that was somewhat there in the Old Testament, but between the Testaments, it really grew into a strong strain of thinking among the Jews that as the descendants of Abraham, they were, they were okay with God. They were covered, that the, the righteousness of the patriarchs was sufficient to cover them, almost like the Roman Catholic idea of the treasury of merit, uh, that they were, that they were okay. Well, John says, don't think that way. God is able to raise up from these stones, of which there would be no, no, no shortage of rocks around, from these stones, children uh, of God, children for Abraham. Uh, and that may be somewhat of a reference to the Gentiles, uh, not to take so much uh, confidence in their ethnic identity, because God, and he was, going to bring Gentiles in as part of his people as well. Well, what do we learn from this? We learn we have no righteousness of our own, certainly not in titles. The Pharisees, the Sadducees had a very strong sense of group identity. And even though they're referred here together, they really don't get along with each other. They didn't like each other. And, of course, if they had anything that united them later, it was the ministry of Jesus and their opposition to it. Uh, But they had a a great sense of of identity and who they were, being a Pharisee or being a Sadducee. Titles don't give us any righteousness, not in behavior. The Pharisees certainly were most careful about their external behavior and righteousness. You know that later in this gospel, Jesus takes them to task for their righteousness being merely outward. Not in ancestry, children of Abraham. No. Uh, And that's true for us. We need to be careful that we're not standing on church membership or family uh, or activity or our efforts to be good or any of those things to give us righteousness before God. Uh, They simply don't work. We have no righteousness of our own. Another motive for repentance, the alternative to repentance, is divine judgment. We see this in verses 10 and 12, where two metaphors are used. One is that of an axe chopping down the tree, this tree that's bearing bad fruit. Notice it's laid at the roots. I think normally we we would chop a tree down above the roots, take a chainsaw and be a stump left. The, The point may be, be cut down so thoroughly there's not even a stump left. Almost as if you just dug right, sawed right under, and cut out the roots and everything, and it's, it's gone, a complete judgment. The other metaphor is that of a threshing floor. In verse 12, the winnowing fork is in the hand of the Messiah. He'll clear his threshing floor. And the picture here was a familiar one where they would take the grain, the wheat, and with their, their threshing uh, tool, throw it into the air, allowing the husks, the chaff, to be blown away by the wind and the heavier grain of wheat to fall back to the floor. Well, the idea here is that the, the, they've, been, they've been threshed, the grain, the people of God, those who repent, 
are stored, uh, are kept. But the chaff, those in their sin who refuse to repent, face judgment. And he says the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I was intrigued to discover the word there is a word you know. It's asbestos, the word here for unquenchable fire. And certainly points to uh, the judgment of hell, not merely a figurative thing, but a very real thing. The alternative to repentance is to face God's judgment. And if that's not a motive, I don't know what is. But the flip side of that is that in, in repentance, God gives us what we need. Look at verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Righteousness doesn't come through John. John's ministry is one of repentance, as he says. You see, John could baptize as an expression of repentance. Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. John could hear confession of sin. Jesus will purify Sin. And, and you see John's innate humility, not even worthy to perform for the Messiah a task of a servant, to untie, as the other Gospels mention, or here, and to carry his sandals. That's the task a servant in the household would perform. John says, I'm not even worthy to do that for the one I introduce, for the one who is to come after me. And so God provides us with the work of the Holy Spirit as we repent. God provides us with pure in fire there, I think, is not a reference to judgment, but a reference to purity, to being purified. Uh, Jesus, the Messiah, is able to purify, to cleanse the one who comes to him in sincere repentance. Well, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not a believer, if you have never truly repented of your sin, and I'm not saying if you're not a church member, I'm saying if you have never, under conviction of your sin, repented of it, confessed it to God as what it is, an offense to him, and with every good intention and with his help to turn from it and turn to faith in Jesus and his righteousness, then I call you to do that. This passage calls you to do that. John would have called you to do that. The Lord Jesus calls you to repent, to turn from your sin, to recognize you have no righteousness, to recognize that you are exposed at every moment to the fierce and fearsome judgment of God and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You say, well, I've done that. Well, I'm glad. But do you continue to repent? Do you live a life of repentance? Or to be more specific, let me ask you this. As we move from one year into another, can you look back at 2007 and see any way that your life changed as a result of repentance of sin? Are you a different person now than you were in January of 07 because of God's work in your life, because God's showing you sin, because God's exposing that and, and, and leading you and gently calling you to repent of that and to turn to him, first for forgiveness and cleansing, and second for grace to be obedient to him in that area? Repentance ultimately involves change. Do you see change in your life last year? Maybe so, maybe not, and maybe there was, and you just can't remember it or point to it specifically. God's always at work in the hearts of his people. But let me encourage you in 2008 to live a life of daily repentance. Every day we've sinned against God. Every day we need to go back to the cross, acknowledge that at the very least we have not loved him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as we've loved ourselves. But if you can, be more specific than that. Confess it, ask his forgiveness, and ask for grace 
to begin to do that. Because you see, repentance is a big deal in the Bible. It should be a big deal in your life in 2008 and always. Let's pray. Father, it is a big deal. And we repent of our lack of repentance. Father, we pray that you would convict us of sin, not in order to crush us, but to show us who we really are. But also, Lord, show us your grace in Christ. Show him to us as the righteous one and the one who gives that righteousness to us. Father, we confess our sins to you. We repent of them in sincere intention. We want to turn from them to those things that please you. Show us our sin, but Lord, also show us the Savior and show us your power by the Holy Spirit that we would live lives of repentance and experience your grace in all the days of this year. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.